I'd like to show you a new advertising campaign that's about to be launched in London next January. It's a campaign being run by Richard Dawkins, who many of you have probably heard of. Uh, he's quite a well-known atheist. And next January, up to 60 London buses are going to have this plastered over their sides. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. There's probably no God. Stop worrying. Enjoy your life. Now I don't know what sort of feelings a sign like that conjures up in you, but this morning I'd like us to actually think about how God might feel when he reads a sign like that. I wonder what sort of emotions a sign like that evokes in the one true and living God. Because you see, as I've been spending time in the section of Jeremiah that we've reached this morning, I'm wondering that if Jeremiah teaches us anything, it teaches us that when God reads a sign like that, a very big part of him is infuriated. It's not the whole picture. But I think Jeremiah shows us that when God reads a sign like that, a very big part of him is absolutely enraged. And Hey, I know that's not a particularly popular idea. I know it's not a particularly happy idea. Uh, in our politically correct world, the idea of God getting angry about anything, well, that's sort of frowned upon. But if today's section teaches us anything, it is that God does not take it lightly when people turn their back on him. God does not take it lightly when people desert him. God does not take it lightly when people dismiss him disclaim him, forsake him. God does not take it lightly when people treat him lightly. Now we see it in this morning's section of Jeremiah because that's precisely what Israel are guilty of doing at the time of Jeremiah. We got a bit of a glimpse very briefly of this last week at the Celebration Sunday. Chapter 1 introduced us to a very, very big God, but a God who is going to use the Babylonian nation to tear Israel down as punishment because of Israel's wickedness in forsaking him. And look, the way it works this morning is that in chapters 2 to 17, a very big section, but it's a section of Jeremiah where God now goes into graphic detail as to precisely how Israel have gone about forsaking him. God's going to go into a lot of detail about their wickedness, which shows beyond question, no matter what they might be saying, a wickedness that shows that they have turned their backs on him. And it's going to make for fairly graphic reading, I'd have to say. Because time and time again, God's going to point out that they have treated him like, like dirt. And God will repeatedly say to Israel, you have forsaken me. You have forsaken me. You have forsaken me. And I hate you for it. God does not take it lightly when people treat him lightly. I hope you're not. But let's see how it plays out for Israel. And look, it's a long section. I want to suggest there's three main movements to it. Because have a look at these three uh, excerpts on the, on the screen. Jeremiah 2, verses 1 to 2. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Jeremiah 7, 1 to 2. This is the word that came to Jerusalem from the Lord. Stand at the gates of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Uh, Jeremiah 11, 1, 1 to 2. 
This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Listen to the terms of this covenant and tell them to the people of Judah. Now I want you to notice a bit of a word formula of what's going on in those verses. Firstly, we are told in each of them that the word of the Lord comes to to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to me, the word that came to Jeremiah, the word that came to Jeremiah. Then after that, we are then told that Jeremiah is told to go and do something, to either go or stand or listen. And then thirdly, Jeremiah is told to say something, to proclaim or to tell. And you see, the way it works in the text is that 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 little word formula introduces a whole new section which zeroes in on one particular way that Israel have treated God poorly. It it introduces a section of one particular theme detailing how Israel have gone about forsaking Yahweh. And so, for example, the first one, the first cab off the rank, and this is really the biggie, this is the one that's the background noise through absolutely everything. The big one is Israel's mistreatment of Yahweh by chasing after false gods which is what was introduced by the reading we've just had. So drop with me back to chapter 2, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. There's a little introductory formula. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me, followed me through the desert. Israel here is being likened to a young bride whom God has pursued and courted and swept off her feet. And at first, Israel responded with love and commitment. Uh, Yahweh fondly remembers the devotion of her youth. And so the picture we're meant to have in our head is of a young husband flicking through the photo album of the wedding day, looking at photos of the honeymoon, looking at photos of he and his wife smiling and laughing, looking at photos of he and his wife nestled in each other's arms. That's Yahweh in these opening verses. The great tragedy is he's looking through the photo album alone because his wife is now in the arms of another man. And it's at this point that for some of us, Jeremiah gets particularly painful because I know that for some of you, you know exactly what that's like to be cheated on and the hurt and the anger that washes through and the betrayal And the horror, God knows exactly what that's like. Chapter 2, verse 11. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet They're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens. Shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water. And have dug their own systems, broken systems that can't even hold water. Friends, what follows now is an almost endless gallery of images of Israel being unfaithful to Yahweh by chasing after other gods. And the whole offensiveness of their actions is heightened by it being continually likened to a husband being betrayed by an unfaithful, unashamed wife. Verse 20 of chapter 2. Long ago you break off your yoke and tore off your bonds and you said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you, d- you lay down as a prostitute. Verse 23. How can you say I'm not defiled? I've not run after the bowels. See how you behaved in the valley. Consider what you've done. 
You're a swift she-camel, running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving. In her heat, who can restrain her? Any male that that pursues her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they'll find her. And it goes for chapter after chapter after chapter, and it is deliberately vivid as Israel is depicted as a whore spreading her legs for just about anyone she can find. And it is deliberately confronting and it is deliberately disgusting so as to drum home the point that it is disgusting to the one true God when people worship, chase after false gods. In fact, it's not only obscene, it's absurd. It's not just sinful, it's just plain stupid. Chapter 2, verse 27. They say to wood, wood, you are my father, and to stone, you are my birth. Uh, you gave me birth. Like, how dumb is this? To worship stuff that their own hands have crafted, like wood or stone, or, I mean, think about it. What's something you've made lately? I know, dinner? A cake. Can you imagine pulling a cake out of the oven, putting it on a table to cool, and then bowing down and worshipping it? Building your whole life and plans and decisions makings around the cake. How stupid would that be to worship what your hands have made? Who would do that? Well, we know exactly who would do it, don't we? People like you and I do it. We are so creative at coming up with false gods to put at the centre of our life. Education, politics, the house, the car, the boat, the sport, the hobby, the job, the family, the... You do realise how incredibly dumb it is to make those things the centre of your life. You do realise how incredibly obscene it is to God to make those things the centre of your life. He does not take it lightly when we treat him lightly. He hates it, hates it when we worship the works of our hands. Uh, But hey, it's not just false gods that's wrong with Israel, as if that's not bad enough. False confidence is also a problem. Jump now to chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1. Here comes our introduction of a little new section. Although false gods, it's always there in the background, but there's a bit of a new emphasis comes in at this point. Chapter 7, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house. Proclaim this message. There's our introductory formula. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I'll let you live in this place. Don't trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Now, you've got to see what's... What's going on at this point? Israel, as we have just heard, they are treating Yahweh with absolute contempt. They are playing the whore with every other god they can lay their hands on. Meanwhile, they take confidence in the fact that, that they physically have the temple of the Lord. They are saying stuff like, oh, yeah, God's not going to punish us, we'll be right. We have the temple of the Lord, we've got the temple of the Lord, the temple of as if as if somehow... Physically having the building will act like a magic charm for them. Across in chapter 8, Israel also talks about having the law of the Lord. Uh, Don't look it up. They say, we are wise, we have the law of the Lord. As if simply having the law will excuse them from not 
obeying the law. It's a false confidence. It's a false confidence in externals of religion as if that's enough. And it's incredibly offensive to God. Pick the marriage thing again. It's as if the unfaithful spouse says, oh, look, everything's all right, the marriage is okay, I've got my wedding ring on. As if that matters. Yeah, yeah, okay, I'm sleeping around a lot, but got my wedding ring on, it's fine. To Yahweh, it is incredibly demeaning, objectionable, hurtful, and again, just plain stupid. Chapter 7, verse 9. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe? Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But but I've been watching, declares the Lord. Now I want you to sense just the, the sheer incredulousness of God over the dumb arrogance of Israel in these verses. Their lives are full of sin and they walk into the temple with a copy of the law under their arm and they think they're okay. I mean, do they think that God can't see them? Do they seriously think God doesn't know what their lives are really like? Who would be that stupid? I mean, it's like someone thinking that owning a Bible, heck, even reading a Bible is all that matters, and that you don't actually have to do anything that it says. Please tell me there's no one here that dumb. Please tell me that there's no one here treating God with that level of contempt. He hates it when we treat him like a fool, as if he can't see what we're really like. He doesn't take it lightly when you treat him that lightly. But Israel, as if all this isn't enough, they're not only whoring after false gods, they're not only relying on just false religiosity, they're making false promises or at least they had made them. Chapter 11, verse 1. Again, we get an introductory little formula. A new issue is going to come to the fore, although the other things, they're still going to be there in the background. Here's a new twist. Chapter 11, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Listen to the terms of this covenant and tell them to the people of Judah and to those who live in Jerusalem. There's a little introductory formula. Tell them that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Cursed is the man who doesn't obey the terms of this covenant. The terms I commanded your forefathers when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the iron smelting furnace. I said, obey me and do everything I I command you and you'll be my people. I'll be your God. Now, this one's a little bit too, uh, a little bit hard to notice at first, but what is happening in chapter 11 is that you start to now get a clustering of a whole lot of phrases and a whole lot of words which are echoing books of the law in the Old Testament, especially books like Deuteronomy. Uh, Even just in those few verses, phrases like the terms of this covenant, the whole introduction of the, the idea of the covenant, cursed is the man, that sort of phrase. It's all stuff deliberately plucked straight out of Deuteronomy and it's as if God is now deliberately drawing attention to the fact that Israel had promised to keep the law. They'd they'd made a covenant but now they've broken the covenant. 
And so it's one thing to chase after other gods. It's another thing to have false confidence in the fact that you've got a temple and a copy of the law. It's altogether worse because they have specifically promised that they wouldn't do that sort of stuff. Mount Sinai, after the Exodus, Israel signed off on the covenant. They promised that they would be holy to Yahweh and now they were acting as if that promise meant nothing. And again, it's incredibly offensive. Now, the offensiveness of it even gets amped up in the text because what starts to happen in the book is that you get to hear a little bit more of Jeremiah's personal experiences at this point. Uh, up until then, you've just been heard of, we've just been uh, privy to the message he's been giving, but you start to get more detail about what's going on in his actual life because what starts to happen is that the way God has been treated by Israel it starts to get reflected into the way Jeremiah himself now starts to get treated. What specifically happens is in chapter 11, a plot is hatched to shut Jeremiah up by killing him. Jeremiah's own community, the community of priests that he grew up with, can you believe it? They decide they don't like what Jeremiah is saying and so they plot to kill him. Now, this is about as sensible as driving a car without any oil in the motor whatsoever, and when the red light on the dashboard starts flashing, your response is to put a handkerchief over the light so you don't see it anymore, as if that'll fix the problem. That is the level of absurdity of what is going on here, as if if shutting up Jeremiah is going to stop God being angry. And in all the other things... the false gods, the false confidence, the false promises, it is all incredibly, it's just outrageous and detestable. And I'm thinking it reaches one of its darkest moments when after all these chapters of how Israel have forsaken Yahweh, after all these chapters, you finally reach that terrible point when Yahweh says in return, I will forsake you. Chapter 12, verse 7. I will forsake my house. I will abandon my inheritance. I will give the one I love into the hands of her enemies. My inheritance has become to me like like a lion in the forest. She roars at me. Therefore, I hate her. Now, they are chilling words. I hate her. What are we going to do with words like that? In one sense, what's any of this got to do with us? We're not Israel. We're not looking down the barrel of Babylon coming and taking us over. And there is a real world of difference between us and them. This side of the cross, Jesus' death on our behalf, we have forgiveness, we have acceptance before God, we enjoy God's spirit. In the words of Hebrews in the New Testament, we've come to the church of the firstborn. Names written in heaven. Because of Jesus, there is enormous difference between us and Israel in terms of intimacy with God. And yet, you cannot read these chapters in Jeremiah, I don't think, and see how Israel treated God. I don't think you can help but be drawn in and start to wonder about, gosh, I wonder how I'm treating God in comparison to this. Gosh, I wonder if actually I'm a bit guilty of treating the Lord God Almighty too lightly as well. 
Because is it not the case that, that the terrible tragedy is that for many of us here, many of us probably know people who for all intents and purposes actually do seem to be in precisely the same predicament as Israel. People who, like Israel, made promises of loyalty to God. They used to testify to a faith in Jesus. They used to be so on fire for Jesus. They used to be doing so much around church. For for some of us, they may even be the people who introduced us to Jesus in the first place. And yet now, time has shown their commitment to Jesus to be empty, external, superficial. And now, like Israel, their lives are chock full of false gods. And, okay, I know we can have those theological discussions about whether they were Christian in the first place. Were they the elect or not? Can a genuine Christian ever fall away? Those sorts of theological discussions, they, they have a place occasionally. Bottom line is, people who used to say they had a faith in Jesus have now forsaken Jesus. And a passage like this in Jeremiah, I'm thinking, is screaming out to us, don't be like them. Don't do an Israel. To quote the New Testament book of Hebrews again, a book directed to Christians who are in danger of forsaking Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 says, we must pay more careful attention therefore to what we've heard so that we don't drift away. For if the message spoken by angels which is the message spoken by angels to Israel, if the message spoken to Israel was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? You see, you get the point. It's bad enough for Israel to have forsaken God in the Old Testament the way they do here in in, in Jeremiah. How much worse for you and I, who enjoy an even greater salvation, if we forsake that? And so, okay, it's a dark section in Jeremiah. Israel's contemptible treatment of Yahweh. It's a terrible passage. Might it also be a timely passage? Because a passage like this challenges each and every one of us to consider whether we might be falling into the trap of treating God a little too lightly as well. A passage like this challenges each and every one of us to consider whether maybe, just maybe, you're making a few mistakes in your life at the moment. And maybe, just maybe in time, they might grow into a very dangerous habit. And maybe, just maybe in time, they they could even grow into false gods. And maybe in time... They will destroy your faith. And a passage like this challenges each and every one of us to do whatever it takes to not forsake God. Do whatever it takes to not drift from Jesus. Okay, and that might be hard. It may mean owning up to and dealing with a sin in your life which up until now you have just been denying how serious it really is. It may mean giving up a pastime that you really love doing, but in your heart of hearts, you can sense the stirring of a false god. 
It may mean giving away more money, being a bit more generous as a safeguard against greed, which God plainly says is idolatry. It may mean that you're not even here this morning and you're listening to this on the internet because you've let an issue put a distance between you and church and it's drifting you from Jesus. It may mean that you're going to have to start obeying the Bible rather than simply owning a Bible. It may mean walking away from a friendship or a peer group or a relationship which means a lot to you, but you know it's drifting you from Jesus. Friends, hanging in there with Jesus, it can be hard work and a lot of effort. It may bring heartache, but you've got to do it. We've got to do it. Because if we forsake God, if you do what Israel did, you will face what Israel faced, the fierce anger of an infuriated God. Because irrespective of what you might like to pretend, he does not take it lightly when we treat him lightly. My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She roars at me. Therefore, I hate her. Friends, they are words you never, ever want to hear from the God of all the universe. I'll pray. Father, please give us an honesty and a courage before your word this morning. Thank you for lovingly reminding us from Israel's history the seriousness of drifting from you and forsaking you. Father, we don't want to do that. Please help us. Help us to own up to those things in our life that we might need to in order to ensure that it doesn't happen. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for a church family to encourage us and spur us on. Father, in Christ, we have a great salvation. Thank you. Help us to make every effort to never drift from it. Amen.